The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I am Beth Graham, as I mentioned, and I work here at Christ Presbyterian Academy alongside David Filson. So when you think of it, pray for me, who's wonderful. David is wonderful and sometimes hard to keep up with. We're going to be reading today from Exodus 14, and we've come to a really exciting part of the story because the Israelites are being pursued by the Egyptians after just finally being released from slavery. What I'm going to read is in the bulletin, so feel free to follow along in the bulletin. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Exodus 14 and follow along in there. I'm going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 14. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory after Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, becoming, excuse me, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord and the pillar pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if there ever was a morning to have a passage like this, uh, it might be this one. 
If it pours rain, we're all staying outside, right? Maybe not. Well, if it does pour rain, we're still going to have our, our party. And it's going to happen in the breezeway and in the lobby. If it can't, uh, can't happen out here, we've got Ladybird Taco. We've got Frothy Monkey. We've got Peach Truck. We, we've got all of these wonderful Nashville things. Uh, and uh, we hope that uh, rain or shine, you will stay. And, uh, and I hope to get through this sermon. I'm going to talk really fast. Uh, but before I do that, I, w- I want to uh, just point you to this. Uh, take a look at this Connect and Serve bulletin. This is going to give you all of, of the options, uh, at least the ones that we're, we're presenting today, about how to connect, how to serve, especially over the summer, special needs community, uh, kids, vacation, vacation Bible school, how to get involved with a group, and so on, uh, especially as we kind of relaunch everything uh, next week, beginning next week uh, on the 13th. So all those things being said, turning our attention now to this, this epic account. And uh, I think uh, one of the questions that we might ask before getting into the passage is, did this really happen? It, it seems a little far-fetched. It seems so miraculous. And, and there are actually people who believe that miracles do happen and there are other people who don't. And uh, so uh, there's an anecdote Uh, that I came across last week that illustrates this. There was an agnostic preacher. Agnostic preachers who don't believe in miracles do exist. And this agnostic preacher stood up in front of his church and read the scripture that you just heard Beth Graham read about the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. And a believing man in the congregation said, "'Praise the Lord.'" taking all those children of Israel through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. And then the agnostic preacher condescendingly said, it wasn't a miracle. They were in a marshland. The tide was ebbing. The children of Israel picked their way across six inches of water. This wasn't a miracle. And then the believer from the congregation responded, praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. Three questions today. Three questions today. What does the Red Sea account tell us about miracles, about people, and about leadership? So let's start with the question of miracles. There are many of us who seriously doubt that miracles can happen, or that they have happened, especially like this. We look for some other explanation for things like this. We believe that there's a closed universe in which we live that is governed by the laws of science, and that is true, generally speaking. There are many of us who believe that science and faith are actually incompatible with one another. If you affirm one or if you embrace one, you've got to reject and negate the other because the two can't go together. But is this true? Is this true? There are many scientists... In our own community, as you know, many of you are are sitting out uh, in the crowd right now. Health workers, geneticists, chemists, climate experts, and so on. And uh, one of our scientists not long ago said to me, I'm here to tell you that my science supports my faith, and my faith supports my science. Both lead me not into skepticism, not into agnosticism, but into childlike wonder. 
Now, there's two things that, 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 that we can wrestle with and consider as we ask the question about miracles before we get to the, the people and leadership part. First is the question of origins. Another scientist in, in our Christ Pres community uh, said in a conversation that, that I had the privilege of being part of with, with a few other scientists, he says, isn't it true that everybody believes in miracles? And the question for uh, those of us in the scientific world where atheists and theists have this debate about origins is where did it all come from? And the question is, what is the most plausible explanation? The atheist faith, he went on to say, believes that galaxies and the human body and the reproductive process and the five senses came to us without any clear, discernible first cause. If the atheist faith, which is a faith, is correct, then the Exodus account is likely a fictional account. But if God does exist then it's entirely plausible that something like this, the sea splitting open, people walking through dry land could happen if a creator exists. If he's powerful enough, my scientist friend says, if he's powerful enough to pull off Genesis 1 and 2, where he spoke words and the galaxies came into being, and then the plants and the animals and the water, the earth and the sky. If he's powerful enough to create everything with words, is he not powerful enough if he can pull off Genesis 1 and 2 to also pull off Exodus 14? Isn't he powerful enough to suspend the very laws that he created, the very science that he created to suspend it, to hit pause on certain elements of it, to do something miraculous and wondrous to demonstrate that he is there? Wouldn't a gracious, kind, generous God like that want to make himself known in a way that believers could actually have an anchor for what they believe? And they can look to their faith and say it is plausible. There's one other thing. The resurrection of Jesus, which you know, every Easter we, we talk about how the historical claims of the resurrection of Christ coming up from the dead passes every evidence test. It passes every court of law test. In fact, you know, and, and I say this, almost every Easter, Simon Greenleaf, one of the founders of Harvard Law School, became a Christian trying to disprove the resurrection because he came to believe it. Every Ivy League university except for one, ad Vanderbilt, ad Lipscomb, ad Belmont, founded by people who believe in the resurrection. It's not for intellectual dummies. You know, Andy Stanley, who's a, a pastor in Atlanta, <clears throat> said it this way. If a guy, speaking of Jesus, can predict his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then figure out how to pull it off, it makes sense to believe and build your life on everything else he says, doesn't it? It's food for thought. Among some of the things that Jesus said were the books of Moses were true. He spoke of the books of Moses as history, not as myth, as fact, not as fiction. And so to contend with the claims of Moses is to contend with the claims of Jesus, which is also to, to uh, contend with the claims of the resurrection. And so we have to ask ourselves, 
Which is more plausible? That no God exists and things just happened. We just happened. Or that God exists and he's got the power to create everything, to make everything, and also to suspend whatever he wants to suspend that he put into place in order to show he is there. We have to ask ourselves, which is more plausible? So that's one of the things that the Red Sea account tells us about miracles. But what does it tell us about people? Well, if you're an Egyptian, it tells you that there are two kinds of people. There are winners, like us, and there are losers, like them, the Israelites. But if you're an Israelite, you also separate the world of people into two groups. There are the innocent oppressed, like us, and the evil oppressors, like them, the people of Egypt. Now, they did have a point about the evil oppressor. The Egyptian pharaoh is a tyrant. He has brought trauma upon trauma upon trauma, especially to the people of Israel, killing mass amounts of babies, mistreating immigrants, playing God, restricting religious freedom, all of these things. He's a king without a conscience. He believes that the universe revolves around himself and around his own agenda. And he believes that everybody else exists to serve his kingdom and his agenda. He even becomes what they call a victim shamer. Right? Remember, he puts this impossible demand on the people of Israel to make more and more bricks, but with less and less materials. And, and the foremen cry out, this is impossible. And he takes it as a personal assault toward his leadership, rather than considering the cries of the victims. He's in his own world. And it's, it's this kind of tyrant that provides the context for a prayer that makes a lot of us uncomfortable and for a celebration and a form of worship that makes a lot of us uncomfortable that happens after the Exodus event, where it says that Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, leads the entire congregation of Israel to praise the Lord because the Lord has thrown the Egyptian horse and rider and tyrants into the sea, celebrating tragedy for the people of Israel. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable like three out of every, or I'm sorry, one out of every five psalms make us uncomfortable. They're called the imprecatory psalms. These are prayers that come from a place of hurt, from a place of anger, from a place of fear, and are, and are leveled against enemies. Psalm 35, this is God's word. He inspired these prayers. Let the enemy's way be dark and slippery. Psalm 58, break the teeth of their mouths. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Psalm 109, let their days be few, let curses come upon them. And we've got to ask, you know, how, how does this kind of language and how do these kind of prayers inspired by God himself, given to the people of God to pray in certain situations, how does this reconcile with a God who's love? How can, how can the two go together? A Miroslav Volf, who uh, is a Croatian intellectual, he uh, 
He's had a teaching post at Yale and has written books, one of which is called Exclusion and Embrace. And he talks about enmity from the context of his own war-torn situation. And he says this about the imprecatory prayers. He says, imprecatory prayers are hard to understand if your life is surrounded by suburban comfort. But if you've grown up in a war-torn land, such prayers become a source of comfort in and validation for your pain. This might point to the same kind of relief that a lot of people in our own context felt when the officer was convicted for killing George Floyd, or the relief that others in our own context might have felt when Larry Nasser was convicted for abusing all of those young female athletes over the course of years, or the relief that many of us may have felt when Saddam Hussein or bin Laden were captured and punished for the things that they did. The point being, the closer evil is to home, and and the more vicious the injury of evil that is perpetrated, the more Miriam's prayer and the more the imprecatory prayers even of the Psalms start to make sense. Our own confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, talks about how we worship God to the praise of his glorious grace, and it also talks about how we worship him to the praise of his glorious justice. He's, just, he's as just as he is loving and gracious. He's as gracious and loving as he is just. It all comes together. And there's something in here for the people of Israel to be humbled by as well. Yes, they are an oppressed people group. But that does not mean they are an innocent people group. They complain to Moses, showing their hearts, showing their true postures, what what they really think about God in verse 12, where, where they say to Moses, better to be a slave in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. And then after this incredible miracle, splitting the sea, enabling them to pass through the sea, making them vulnerable no more to the the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. They get nostalgia. Their memory becomes warped about what Egypt was like. And this this is chapter 16. This is just two chapters later. They say to Moses, in Egypt, we sat around mountains of meat, and we ate all the food that we wanted, and yet you, you have brought us into the desert to starve. The grumbling spirit, the complaining disposition. This is what happens when we lose our awe of what God has done, of who God is, infinite, eternal, unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We forget, we lose our awe. He becomes small in our eyes, and our own agendas become bigger in our eyes. The Israelites are showing themselves in some ways no different than Pharaoh. They're content to deny their neighbor, take up their comforts, and follow their dreams. They want their agenda. They don't want the Lord's work the Lord's way. Oh, they want the Lord's work, but they want the Lord's work their way. And so they start to make up stories 
about how great slavery was, about how wonderful it was in the land of making bricks without straw, where we had pots and pots of meat, mountains of meat, ate all the food we wanted, and you brought us into this desert to starve. Yeah, I remember when I, when I first came to serve Christ Prez, and I was, I was struck just by my drive to and from work every day about how beautiful Hillsborough Road, Murray Lane, first of all, and then Hillsborough Road, and then Old Hickory Boulevard, and then back. And I'm just looking around. This place is gorgeous. It's surrounded by these wonderful, you know, Warner Parks. I, I cannot believe I get to live in the middle of all of this beauty. It's like God's given me a taste of the Garden of Eden or a taste of the new heaven and the new earth. That lasted about two weeks. And then what happened? School traffic. School traffic. I've never understood why in Nashville, Tennessee, I've got to pass three schools to get here. Why the speed limit is 15 miles an hour, you guys. My car doesn't know how to go that slow. And so I'm just sitting here, you know, just irritated. And and what am I doing? I'm I'm missing all of these gifts (laughs) that, that are around me. So much beauty around me, and, and, and all I can think about is going faster. Getting to where I'm going, even if I'm not in a rush, even if there's no meeting to get to, even if being five minutes late doesn't matter, I'm irritated because, you know, as, as James Taylor famously said, you know, it hurts my motor to go so slow. Where do we miss the beauty? Where do we forget? Think about Israel, what they had just seen. They had seen walls of water to their left and their right that God created. And and, and to to verify and validate that God created it, God shows up in a pillar of cloud that, that, that stands between them and the Israelites and leads them out. This incredible miracle, the presence of God, the beauty of God, the character of God, the attributes of God, the mysteries of God, the miracle of God, the power of God, the grandeur of God, the grace of God, all of it. And what's their response? Grumbling. And as they grumble, they're showing themselves to be a lot more like the Egyptian Pharaoh than they are like the God they say they serve. C.S. Lewis says that they're actually paving the road to hell for themselves. He writes this in Mere Christianity. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from the grumbling. You may even criticize the grumbling in yourself. You wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, The only thing that will be left is the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. This is just an encouragement to cultivate wonder, to cultivate what Moses kept in these dire circumstances, even when he was all alone, just him and God in his hopefulness. What does this tell us about leadership? Moses is so patient with people's grumbling. Here's how he responds when the people road rage on him. Fear not. Stand firm. 
See the salvation of the Lord. He will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. And here's a surprise. You would think God would come in and say, boy, Moses, you're my guy. Way to go. Way to believe. Way to preach. Way to have courage. You'd think that God would come in and pat him on the back, affirm him. But what does God say in the next verse to Moses? Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forth. That's so strange. Moses gets rebuked with a rebuke that the people deserve. And then the people get the rescue that arguably Moses deserves at least more than they do. Moses is showing us what it looks like to bear the burden of a mediator. It's not just prophets, it's not just pastors, it's also parents, it's also teachers, leaders of organizations, whoever's running point, and you're trying to do so in the name of Christ. People are going to rage at whatever your leadership is. You'll make a decision, you'll, 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 you'll craft a course, and there are going to be some who grumble at you. And then in comes God, and he says, keep leading them. Stay strong. Don't become a whiner. Don't become a victim. Don't do the woe is me thing. Don't victim shame like Pharaoh did. Learn from it. Stay humble. Stay low and never stop caring for the people that I have made who bear the dignity of my image and in Moses' case, who bear the grace of redemption. These sheep are biting you, Moses, but carry them, care for them, tend to them. And Here's what happens. Moses believes God 100%. He says, let's go, you guys. God's made a promise. It doesn't look good, but let's go. The people of Israel, they believed maybe 1%. They followed Moses through the water, but they did so begrudgingly. They'd run out of options, and that was essentially, their, their faith was that, that this was a better option, perhaps, than, than running back to Pharaoh. So Moses believes 100%. The children of Israel believe 1%. I'm almost done. The result for everybody, verse 30, the result for everybody, the Lord saved Israel. Doesn't say the Lord saved Moses, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of Egypt. It is not the strength or the quality of anyone's faith that gets them saved. It is the strength and quality of the Savior who is the object of faith. You have a strong chair right next to you. Whether you believe it's going to hold you or not, it's going to hold you. If you sit in it, or if somebody like the Lord here with Israel throws you in the chair, it's going to hold you, even if you don't believe it will. Jesus is the same way. Jesus is the greater Moses, the selfless intercessor. He got the rebuke we deserved. We are saved from the oppressor. But the oppressor is not as much the tyrant outside of us as it is the tyrant from within us. It's this horrible tyrant that the scripture calls sin, the wages of death, the thing that's, that threatens to kill us the most. And what does Yahweh do for our exodus? He splits the sea of our own hearts, melting us, enabling us to walk into the safety and wild adventure 
of what it means to walk in obedience with him. And then every week for us, and churches like us, splits bread, which reminds us of how his skin was split, and liquid went in all directions, so that the people of God could pass through the torture and treachery of their own hearts into the safety and presence and love of God. That's the invitation to the Lord's Supper today for the people of God. The word for Israel is also the word for us. The Lord has fought for you. It's the only difference. Moses says the Lord will fight for you. Jesus tells us the Lord has fought for you. It is finished. And to that, and this is our closer, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors Israel were all under the cloud of God and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. How appropriate that it's just started to rain. Just remember your baptism right now. As the water falls on your head, remember your baptism. What a sacred gift from the Lord right now to drop subtle drops on our heads. Not to overwhelm us or to flood us, but to drop subtle drops, maybe even to say, remember your baptism. Where you had maybe 1% belief that I was going to follow through with what I've said I'm going to do. That was enough to get you home because it's not the strength or quality of your faith, but the strength and quality of your Savior that gets you home and that gets you to this table. The table is way down there. So I'm going to go to it now. Let's pray first together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for even the symbolism of what you're giving us right now with raindrops, followed by communion and then followed by feasting and laughter together, presumably on the breezeway and indoors. But Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you that just as you split the sea open, you split the bread open, just as the skin of Christ was split and the heart of Christ was split wide open in order to bring us into the wild, adventurous home of your arms and of your grace. Take this bread, take this cup, set them apart, feed our bodies, but Lord, even more deeply, feed our souls. Give us deep faith in who you are and in what you've done, Jesus. In your life, death, burial, and resurrection, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.